Dr. McDonald, I have a question for you. Ask away. What part of your body lights up when you think about doing a family anatomy episode? <laughs> what part of my body lights up? Like E.T. style, what part of my body lights up? If I have to think about where in my body is affected when I have to do family anatomy, like the pit of my stomach, probably. Oh. The, uh, the back of my throat, maybe. Oh. No, of course, my my heart lights up, Giuseppe, when okay. I think about doing the podcast. <laughs> well, that's it's good. it's uh, all know. about love here. I'm just sitting here trying to think how such a totally, utterly innocent question could be so completely (laughs) misunderstood and inappropriate. Boy, it does sound inappropriate for sure. We're not going to talk about too much that's inappropriate this week. We're talking about where you feel your emotions, how relationships affect depression in young parents, and why watching movies with your spouse could save your relationship. It's all this week on Family Anatomy. Hosts of Family Anatomy are psychologists, but they're not your psychologist. So if you need to talk to someone about family or mental health issues, you can get a referral from your family doctor. This show is for information only. Welcome to Family Anatomy, your source for parenting and relationship information with your hosts, Dr. Giuseppe Spezzano. And Dr. Brian McDonald. You can find us at familyanatomy.com or over on iTunes and Let's get right... In, well, let's not get right into it, because Friday was Valentine's Day. We should at least say Happy Valentine's Day to our, our wives and our kids. I think you just did that for me. I did. Both of That's our, very our good. Thank wives you. and all of our kids. All That's of right. Our, <laughs> all of our... Uh, all four of our children. Large group of children. It's a big group. And... That's it. So happy Valentine's Day to them, to our <laughs> listeners, to our extended family, to our friends. Did we miss anybody? I think that's pretty much it. I think you pretty much covered it, man. How about world leaders? Well, hey, and now in Ontario, it's family day today, so we may as well wish everybody a happy family day. Hope they spent the day with their families today while we're sitting in the studio recording a podcast. Working. <laughs> our families are in the other room right now. <laughs> that's right. So, what are we going to get into today? Well, let, why don't we start by talking about this idea of where you feel your emotions. Uh, we've got a paper here called Bodily Maps of Emotions from the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. That's from 2000, a really old study from 2013. Right, from November, and it's researchers from Finland. Finland, a country right. where I'd quite like to be. Yes, where <laughs> I grew up, actually. Oh, really? Really? Uh-huh. You did yeah. not grow up in Finland. What are you I talking didn't. about? No. Anyway, so what did they do here? They wanted to see if there was a distinct set of bodily sensations associated with different emotions. This is one of those studies where I felt like, wow, you know, researchers in psychology have a weird job. Weird, interesting job. (laughs) I guess it's interesting. Weird but interesting. They had their subjects come in and and color their feelings on a body map, right? Well, bodily sensation map. They don't want to call it a body map. Right, they had these... BM. B- <laughs> BM's not good. They didn't like that. Well, that's your initials. That's my initials. They didn't like that. They didn't want to... They want to be uh, associated with Dr. Brian McDonald. They, they didn't want to distract from the study by referencing my name. Hmm. Well, <laughs> too, too bad. That didn't work. No, it didn't. <laughs> Here we are it talking didn't. about we it. Draw, we drew attention back to it. Right. 
So, so yeah, they had these silhouettes, these shapes of people, and then th- they asked about where you feel your feelings, and people would color them in on those bodies. Right. So they had it on a computer, and they had these silhouettes, and you had to color in. Well, they did five different experiments, right? That's right. The first one, they just had the names of feelings and said, okay, anger. Where do you feel that? What's more activated and what's less activated in your body when you talk about anger? Right. So they had a set of uh, simple and complex feelings, right? So they had 13 different feelings. Anger, fear, disgust, happiness, sadness, surprise were the simple ones. And then the complex ones were anxiety, love, depression, contempt, pride, shame, and envy. Shame. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. There you go. There it's you like you read it the paper, Giuseppe. That's good. It's like I actually did read it. <laughs> it's almost like you did. Actually, they had they had Finnish and Taiwanese samples. Yes, they did, and they were able to compare, and they found that they could divide up these different feelings, like the 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 way that people colored in or shaded those bodies um, was sort of consistent, and they could group the different feelings according to how the those silhouettes were colored. Right, so they were able to, I guess, have these silhouettes with different colors show very distinct feelings, like these 13 distinct feelings based on, like you could almost label the look of this silhouette to a feeling. That's what they found. That's what what drew me into the paper in the first place. I saw an article about it in, in, well, online somewhere, some website was talking about it, and they had the graphic of all of these silhouettes, of these brightly colored bodies, and where they felt all of these emotions. And I thought, hey, that looks pretty cool. And it pulled me in to read the rest of the paper. So I actually read it. You sound like you did, <laughs> but I actually did. <laughs> you, you read the pictures. I actually read I, the text. But anyway. I did. I do look at the pictures. <laughs> I get a little distracted uh, what, by them. What happened here was that they thought, well, you know, because there's certain stereotypes around emotions. So you say, well, when you're in love, you know, my heart flutters or, you know. Butterflies or, in your stomach when you're right. afraid so about something. That's it. So people could be coloring, you know, some red into the stomach, let's say, because the, the thing came up anxious, the word came up anxious. So right. they wanted to get away from just uh, what stereotype you might have through the culture so that's one of the reasons they used the two different uh, cultures to look at it, the Finnish and the Taiwanese uh, subjects. Uh, but the other thing they, they did uh, was to try and induce emotions in people and then check it out again. So that was experiment two. That's right. Like they put them in a dark room and they, they played scary sounds to maybe make them feel afraid. No, Wait that's not this what was they did. Not a, th- that was the Halloween they, experiment you're talking about. They used a very common technique, I guess, in psychological research where they had stories that were supposed to evoke certain feelings, right? And they, they very carefully worded those stories to not mention any of those body parts or the feeling words themselves. Right. So it was almost like that some guided imagery, you know, the, that mm-hmm. psychologists do where they're, they're trying to get you to imagine certain things and different emotions come up. And then you go to color in those silhouettes and they got the same result as they got just from showing words in the first That's right. They showed up the same way. And then the third thing they did was they had people watch movies that were supposed to evoke certain feelings. And again, they were able to replicate the results. Th- these guys are awesome, eh? Every, they did Very five consistent. experiments. And <laughs> each one of them, no matter how they attacked this thing, came up with the same thing, which is you can see 
what people are feeling in their body by what part of their body is being activated. There are distinct maps that could be drawn, right? The fourth experiment, they showed facial expressions and asked them to label how they thought the other person felt. But my favorite one was the, the final one, the fifth experiment, right? Yeah, so now they almost reversed the first one. So they showed the bodily maps that were... And said, what feeling is this? And they accurately predicted what feeling it was. Now, there was some overlap. It wasn't 100%. Right. Right? But there was enough of a difference between these images that had been created to, to suggest that there's very distinct bodily sensations that are connected to very distinct feelings, these ones that we were mentioning earlier. Well... Not just that they're distinct, but also that there's an awareness of them, right? I mean, they could have done these experiments with functional MRIs to look at where in the body is actually activated when these feelings occur. They didn't do that. They asked people what they felt or what they, where they thought those feelings would be active in their body, right? And they've got, you know, a lot of the feelings were active in the face and head, apparently because your facial expressions, people are aware of their own facial expressions or because your thoughts change when you're having different kinds of feelings. Uh, A lot of uh, activity was happening in the upper chest area, I guess, where your heart rate would be elevated. You might notice that or your breathing might change, right? That's right. And then there was more upper limb sensations colored in when there's these kind of what they call approach emotions like anger and happiness because you tend to be like going at someone (laughs) when you're angry and happy. The depression and the sadness ones were the ones that jump out as having less activation. Those are the deactivated emotions. Right. In particular, your limbs are deactivated more with with sadness and depression. Well, and which fits with symptoms of depression, right? Which, Which are, you know, you don't feel like doing things. So you're more quiet, you're not moving as much. And of course, happiness was the one where? Well, the sensations were all over your body. That was the, the, the one that was the most sensational, I guess you could say, was That's was right, happiness. the most sensational. <laughs> yeah. the, the whole body was colored in for happiness. And love was another one that had uh, some pretty bright colors there, but happiness was the one that activated everything. So, shall we go on to our second story? Study number two. So, our second story, Love Hurts. Love Hurts, what a, what a title. Wow, that's great. If only they would have stopped there. <laughs> that's right, because really, I'm not even sure why it's called Love Hurts, but this is what the, <laughs> the typical name would be for a research article. Romantic Attachment and Depressive Symptoms in Pregnant Adolescent and Young Adult Couples. From the Journal of Clinical Psychology in 2014. So, that's a pretty right. recent one. Very recent, and these are researchers from Yale and University of New York. Um, I guess some of the background to this is that they found in, in previous studies that young pregnant women experience more depressive symptoms than older pregnant women. So it's a higher risk group, I guess. Well, right. I mean, pregnancy is a stressor for anyone who's pregnant. Even if it's positive, your body's changing and you might be worried about what's going to happen after the baby's born. But when that's happening when you're very young, um, it's easy to imagine that that would be even more of a stressful situation. Yeah, you can imagine that for sure. I mean, if you think about, is there any job that's as big as this one and that has the least amount of training for it? (laughs) Even 
older parents don't necessarily feel confident or or prepared, I guess. Are you ever really ready to have a baby? You're never you don't really, really know. ready. Your first and nobody, one especially. Yeah. Right. And nobody tells you what the challenges are going to be because they don't want to scare you. Exactly right. right. You only hear the positives, <laughs> but you know that uh, there are going to be some surprises along the way. Hopefully yeah, good surprises. I mean, I mean, they don't want to scare you with it, with anything that would make sense, like, you know, maybe giving you some details that you can actually get prepared for. It's more like, well, you, oh. you do hear about sleep, lack of sleep, right? Right. It's going to be great. Oh, you're going to be a great parent, but boy, get ready to never sleep again. That's, I, I remember hearing that over and over and over. Yeah. I got, I got more of the, ooh. You know, that was the extent of the information. That You're going to be a father? <laughs> oh. Hmm. What? Like that. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Basically like an encyclopedia of wow. gestures and, you know, hums and haws. Your family about- was very supportive <laughs> of your choice to become a, fer- a parent. So they looked at 296 pregnant young women and their male partners, the average age of these. We're talking very young, right? Women were between the ages of 14 and 21. That's it. The average age was 18 to 21 overall. I guess the the males were a little, little older. They used questionnaires to measure avoidant and anxious attachment styles, right? So a Anxious attachment, for for those that haven't been listening to our podcast recently, is a fear of abandonment, and avoidant attachment is a fear of closeness. And commitment. So you've got one one group who's very preoccupied about their relationships and on the lookout for signs that their relationship might be on the rocks. They're looking for rejection, and they're constantly asking for reassurance, whereas the other group is sort of avoiding the, yep. uh, their partner. That's right, avoiding and fear of, you know, the pain that can come with, uh, with getting close to someone and potentially having your feelings hurt, so they just take off generally, right? Mm-hmm. So the results of this were that um, people who had higher levels of avoidant and anxiously attached scores on these questionnaires... So if they were insecure in their relationships in either of these two ways, yep. then had higher rates of depressive symptoms. Not just the moms, but the dads too. The dads as well. And so you had worse depressive symptoms in the anxious person than the avoidant person, right? But they both had more depressive symptoms. Exactly. What was even worse was when you paired up someone who is anxious with someone who is avoidant, which is easy to imagine, right? These are... You know, these results are not very surprising to anyone who understands attachment. That's right. And, you know, the the stereotype held true, which is that females were more likely to be anxiously attached and males were more likely to be avoidantly attached. Right. right? And when you have one person who is worried about how the relationship is going and is constantly looking for reassurance, and the other one is trying to stay away from that closeness and probably get stressed by those requests and demands for reassurance, um, those are the ones who had the highest levels of depressive symptoms. You know, what's funny is you see this, you know, we're talking about younger couples with this study, but you see this very regularly with, uh, with couples of, like, all age groups, really, that when they have the child, um, there's a tendency... 
Uh, I would say that, you know, for, of course, the moms to bond with the children that, that are newborns and for the dads to feel a little bit left out and for this sort of dynamic to start right away, you know, where where the dads start avoiding and the, and the mothers are kind of busy, but then they start to get anxious about where'd my husband go, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And so this is something I think that, you know, sh- I, it should be more commonly understood in the culture so that we can have some ways to, to pick up on this and, and keep things from unraveling. Well, it's hard to deal with it if, you, if you're not even aware of it. And the idea is, if this is your pattern of relating to other people, well, when you're under stress, like, that's going to be your go-to. That sort of is, is going to activate those behaviors, and they're going to be exaggerated, maybe even more than they would have been if you weren't stressed by the, the situation of being a new parent or about to become a new parent. The stress only makes these patterns worse, right? Well, and in secure relationships the partner can respond in a way that's more adaptive, right? That system, those attachment behaviors are really meant so that the partners can help one another, so that they can be there for the other person when they're, when they're under stress uh, and be supportive rather than avoiding the situation or constantly becoming preoccupied and anxious about how, how your relationship is progressing. That's right. Now, they did look at um, young expectant Hispanic couples, and they did not find this same trend. And the reason that they were suggesting is that there's a there's a more of a cultural independent stance that you might see from Hispanic couples, whereby, yes, you might have uh, that stereotypical thing where the male's more avoidant and the female's more anxious about the relationship. But just because you have those feelings, like you were just saying, just because you have those feelings doesn't mean that you need to behave based on those feelings that way. You can see it as a signal to re-engage, right? And I think part, partly because of their interdependent kind of cultural values there, that's what tends to happen with these Hispanic couples, at least in this study. Right. The withdrawal, like trying to avoid, is less accepted, I guess, in different cultural groups. So... Uh, even if you feel like doing that, you might you wouldn't necessarily um, remove yourself from the relationship when you're feeling stressed. Exactly. Let's move on to our third story. Story number three. Story number three is my favorite. Is skills training necessary for the primary prevention of marital distress and dissolution? A three-year experimental study of three interventions from 2013 in the Journal of Consulting and Clinical Psychology. I love these research titles. Yeah, you sure you read that right? I, I What I was reading was blah, 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 blah. That's what you were hearing. I was doing my best Charlie Brown's teacher impression. (laughs) (laughs) So let's kind of uh, demystify this thing a little bit. Researchers from the United States and Canada, September 2013 study, who did they study? 174 newlywed engaged or engaged couples, uh, and they randomly assigned these couples to four different groups. Exactly. And they followed them over three years to find out about the impact of being in those different groups and what happened to those groups. So one of the group, one of those groups followed a, what they called a prep intervention, where they were learning about 
conflict resolution strategies, and they were really being taught how to reduce negativity in disagreements between the two partners. Right. So that was, to me, sounded more like a cognitive approach, right? Let's let's problem solve this thing. Let's let's figure out what the problem is and let's solve it. That's exactly. that's the number one group, right? Yep. Second group was called um, the acronym is CARE. And what they were doing there was teaching more emotionally related things like acceptance and support empathy. and empathy. Compassion. Right? I think that's the C, compassion. There you go. So, so they that, were that increasing the more... positive interactions. So in the first group, they were trying to make the negative interactions less negative. And in the second group, they were trying to increase positive interactions between the couples. That's it. And then they got to the third group. The third group was... RA, Relationship Awareness Group. Mm-hmm. And here there was no skills training. And the whole idea was really just uh, that they have the skills already. They just need some more awareness and a bit of motivation and to bring those skills out. Right, right. It was more about not taking your relationship for granted, I guess you could say. You know what you need to do to maintain your relationship, but you just have to do it. Exactly. So then the fourth group was the no treatment group. Those lucky people that got nothing. Yeah, they just uh, <laughs> they got nothing. Yeah, so they they're newlyweds, hang out right? Or they're engaged. The research lab. That's right. They're newlyweds, or they're engaged, and you know they're going off on this new adventure in their life, and the researchers had nothing for them. All right. So what happened to these four groups three years later? Well, that's the thing. The the no treatment pr- group. This this poor group that didn't get anything. The ones who are waiting outside. Waiting outside for the researchers to help them out with their relationships. Thanks for nothing. They had 23% of their marriages fail. Wow. Over the course of these three years. And that's compared to the other three groups that received, well, not necessarily treatment, that either learned some skills or became more aware of the need to use the skills that they had. Only 11% of those relationships broke up over the three-year period. That's it. So really, if you were part of one of these three treatment groups, then you had half the chance that your marriage was going to break up. Wow. Which is a pretty good finding. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the fact that just being aware of what's required in your relationship is enough to be as effective as learning some new skills, that's a pretty awesome finding. It is a pretty awesome finding. And, the, you know, the the thing that was the big headline here, right? Because, you know, the, it wasn't the sort of dry researcher's headline, really. It was right. the newspaper headline that caught our eye. Had to do with Watch the movies. third group. Yeah, right? watch the, movies to so save your relationship. That's it. Watch movies and that will save your relationship. Now, I think that's a little bit simplistic because... You know, if you think about yourself, when's the last time you went to a movie and after the movie, we're talking about support, stress, forgiveness, and how that applied to your marriage? Exactly. It doesn't happen very often. That's not what you're talking about. You're talking about, wow, what was your favorite part of that movie? And uh, Matthew McConaughey McConaughey is a really good actor. Right. (laughs) Hey, what's for dessert? Yeah. (laughs) Wow, I'm really full from that popcorn. That's right. So it's it's sort of uh, you know minimizing the the effectiveness of this this uh, treatment condition to say it was just let's watch a movie and that will save our marriage. Well, right? there's some guided discussion, right? And it, and to to make them aware of support and the importance of of 
communication and things like that within their relationships. It almost makes me wonder, though, G, those skills training things where you're meeting with a therapist, it makes me wonder if really what that's about, the, the, the essential ingredient of those interactions aren't the skills, but the fact that by sitting together and meeting with a the therapist, you're kind of, it's also a relationship awareness intervention. It is a relationship awareness intervention for sure. And, and, and just, I mean, even the fact that you're willing to put the time and energy and what, that, what that's showing to your partner that you actually care about them, that increases a sense of trust, I mean, th- that's a foundation. Totally it is. Uh, and okay, so you can't really just watch a movie and that's, that's not going to be what saves your relationship. It's really those conversations about not taking your relationship for granted and, and remembering that you need to support one another and communication is important and all of those things. It's sort of like, um, it's, it's sort of like couples who maybe read a relationship self-help book and talk about the themes in there and how it applies to their relationships, right? Absolutely. And you can see that sometimes. That's the kind of homework a therapist might give. Listen, yep. the two of you should read this book, chat about it. We'll t- chat about it the next time you come in. Well, Sue that Johnson's kind of book was all about conversations, right? Seven Conversations for a Lifetime of Love was the subtitle of that, of Hold Me Tight, right? That's and right. That's exactly what it's about, talking honestly with your partner about your relationship and what's important. That's right. Put, putting them first. That's one of the ways you're showing you're putting them first. I mean, how many times have you seen a situation where one person will come to the couple counseling, the other person doesn't really want to come? They're, they're just dragged right? along. Yeah. They're dragged along and sometimes they make it and sometimes they don't. And when they do, do make it, they're not really, their heart's not into it. So that, that's, that right there is telling you what the state of that relationship is. Mm-hmm. And the opposite is also true. If you're putting some time and energy and and showing that you care about that other person, you're putting them first, well, that's the foundation for something to to go well. It certainly is. So you don't necessarily need to learn a whole bunch of new skills, but you do need to be aware of your relationship and not take your partner for granted. There's a happy Valentine's Day message for everyone. Happy Valentine's Day, exactly. So I think that's it for us. You can visit us at FamilyAnatomy.com or email us at info at FamilyAnatomy.com. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter and Google+. If you're listening on your iPhone or your iPad, you can find us in the podcast app. As usual, we'll leave you with a bit of a tune by Brother Love, and he's over at BrotherLoveRocks.com. Thanks for listening. See you in two weeks. Family Anatomy.com.